When I think of the phrase peer volunteer in relationship to aging populations, it makes me think of a role that a good friend or neighbor might have once played, someone who had the time and wherewithal to look in on an older member of a community who was probably living alone far from any relatives. So much has changed, this notion can seem rather quaint and outdated. But just imagine, today, tapping into the goodwill and good intentions of people who do have some time on their hands and who themselves are growing older and thus have some stake in ways to help elders remain in their own homes or neighborhoods for as long as possible. Well, this can be a real sweet spot. And in one community in Canada, it's become an impressive collaborative that's marrying the best of informal caring traditions with the challenges of aging in a very high-tech and complex and expensive world of acute care medicine. So that's what we're going to focus on, on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We do come to you bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience, we hope, via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So here at IHI, we learned about this program called Home for Life in South Georgian Bay, Ontario, Canada, almost by chance, but we're so glad we did because what's going on there is precisely the kind of new thinking and innovation needed for aging populations everywhere. So let me now introduce our guests and a reminder that they do have longer bios and all sorts of achievements and accolades on the WIHI webpages um, as well as on their own organization's websites. Sharon King is a principal with and co-founder of Starfield Consulting. That's a firm dedicated to helping healthcare organizations accelerate the achievement of meaningful outcomes outcomes in complex strategic initiatives. Sharon is a leading voice on how to be successful in transformation initiatives within the healthcare sector, and she spearheaded or helped spearhead the initiative that's our focus today, Home for Life. Welcome, Sharon. Thanks, Madge. Terrific. And Mimi Toomey is with us. Mimi leads the Office of Policy Analysis and Development at the Administration for Community Living, ACL, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Her office identifies and analyzes emerging policy issues and trends related to the aging and disability populations and advances innovative program strategies consistent with the priorities established by the Assistant Secretary for Aging. Mimi has over 25 years of multi-level experience on aging issues. Welcome, Mimi. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, thank you, and uh, I hope uh, you're all hearing well. As a reminder, if you have any issues whatsoever, uh, uh, toss those uh, chat comments over to John, um, and then he'll try and help you out. So we're going to lead off today with a very, well, we have two polling questions. Uh, regular WIHI listeners uh, will know we like to do this from time to time. It helps make sure uh, everybody's uh, all on the same page at any given moment. Um, so first, the first question, we have two questions today, and the first one is uh, we just, it's a WebEx poll, and we'll keep the poll open even as we get underway. And also, you are welcome to chat in answers if you don't see yourself or your issue in our quick poll. So, uh, John, you want to bring up that first slide? 
for those of you also who are joining by phone only, a reminder that you can get this. It's a little hard for you to participate in a WebEx poll if you're only on the phone, but you can certainly download all these slides or ask for them from um, if you email info at IHI.org. So here's the first thing we want to know. What primary role do you play with older populations? Now, we chose three things, friend, family member, volunteer, provide healthcare services, provide social services, or run programs for seniors. We'd love to know, those of you who joined today, kind of how you might break yourselves down in terms of the prevailing identity you might have uh, for joining today. So go ahead and you can start answering that question. And I have another one as we get a little further into the program, but we'll get underway. So, uh, John, that's right, and the poll is open for about uh, several minutes, 10 minutes, okay. So thanks for letting us know who's joined. All right, Sharon King, I'm gonna come to you first. Um, these, this is sort of just an opener question for you. Um, you're about to describe an effort that combines the energies and know-how of six organizations that offer acute care, long-term care, outpatient care, and supportive community services. What is it that this collaborative figured out together that none of them would have sorted out separately? Kind of just your general response to that question, and then we'll get into talking about Home for Life in particular. Welcome, Sharon. Thanks, Matt. Um, well, in, uh, in Canada or in Ontario, there's a lot of fiscal pressures that the organizations are dealing with. And the CEOs of each of the organizations separately understood that they couldn't solve the problems alone um, because so much was outside of their walls. They didn't have control over. So very quickly they realized that they couldn't uh, resolve the um, issues they needed to without involving social services and without involving the community. So what have they learned? Um, the biggest learning is that people who live and are part of the actual fabric of the community intuitively know how to solve the problems they're facing. They know what will work, um, and they're actually more than willing to make it happen. Um, we have continually been surprised at the number of people that really want to help. Um, they want to make a difference, and they appreciate the opportunity to make a difference. Okay. And finally, how you engage them, though, is critical. All right. Well, that's perhaps some of the um, stuff that you uh, have figured out. Um, I, when the poll question, when this one uh, comes down, we're going to share uh, a link that Sharon King very nicely shared with us and her publisher. Uh, it's just some interesting background literature uh, that um, gives kind of a sense of some of the thinking, uh, big thinking, vision thinking, leadership thinking that went into uh, some of the efforts here in South Georgian Bay. Um, so we'll put that link up there uh, in a moment. I do want to say to everybody that this is by special arrangement with the publisher, so it's a link that we're only able to share uh, today. So do make sure uh, you take advantage of it. But uh, so Sharon, let's let's talk a little bit. Um, I wish we could go to South Georgian Bay right now. Um, John is going to throw up. Uh, at least it's like 
Google map, I guess, of kind of where we are uh, in that part of the world, the A, as everyone knows who's often looking, uh, dealing with Google Maps, that's where it is um, in Ontario. But um, tell us a little bit about this place, how this community decided to take responsibility in some fashion for its aging member, members, and in a way by tapping something quite traditional. Um. So the how is what was not traditional. You're right, the idea of volunteering is traditional. South Georgian Bay is a mecca for the elderly because of its geography. As you can see, it's located right on the water. What you can't see is, well, what we in Ontario call mountains. Some of you may not call them mountains. But so it's also got skiing. So people retire there. Uh, so they have one of the eighth largest elderly population in Canada. Um, so keeping people at home was critical, and there was a, a few pieces that made a real difference in really engaging people, in engaging the volunteers. Um, the big piece was that we involved the community from the start before any idea of the solution was defined. So over 100 people came together and the only thing that the collaborative had as a question was, how do we keep seniors at home given that there is no money? And given that we have to make a difference within six months and then there were certain government policies. So there was no preconceived solutions or ideas. Um, so for instance, there was one gentleman in quadriplegic who made this impassioned plea about how technology would make a difference because his friends were dying because of isolation. That ended up being one of the initiatives that was selected. You know, another piece was that we didn't define how long people discussed an item. So, like, our Buddies for Seniors program, 75% of the room was involved in that discussion for over three hours. The real critical, so, so the piece that they really generated them, they just didn't respond to them, was one critical piece. The second piece was no idea was selected unless that day there was a person who raised their arm and was willing to make the lead to make it happen and that they had a team to help them. Mm -hmm. uh, so that marriage of passion and responsibility really generated the enthusiasm. So talk about um, just, I, and again, as everyone knows on WIHI, we can never go into, um, you know, a tremendous detail, but give us a sense. So this is a program run by whom um, and what are the basic services offered and how do they get initiated, these services? So there's six organizations that came together, a hospital, a long-term care facility, the people in charge of our community resources. Um, the, uh, kind of a a place where you can phone that um, it's called Community 211, so you can phone to find services. They all came together. Um, this launch meeting, the community itself decided what services would be provided. The three services uh, selected were a Buddies for Senior program where somebody from the community would buddy up with a senior and support them in putting in place whatever services they need to help them stay at home. So these services would be um, often not related to healthcare. Like often it's gardening or snow shoveling or or something. 
so that's one program. The second program is technology, which is basically helping seniors learn how to use technology so they could stay in touch with their family and friends. And the third program was um, home fitness, like a kind of a the bridge between the YMCA and physiotherapy, like like that in between section, were the three programs that were chosen. What makes somebody a really good candidate for uh, the services themselves? Um, if you had to kind of you know a persona of an older member of the community who's just right for what Home for Life offers. You know, it's interesting because one of the neat things about Home for Life is that it does support all levels. Our okay. volunteers will – one of the things they do is with early volunteers, they become they, – they are able to identify early indicators of problems like Alzheimer's or those kinds of things and kind of put them in touch with services. For the more ill and the um, the more severe – just simple things like transportation services or friendly visiting become critical. What's important is the constant connection with one person that they learn and trust and who has the bandwidth to really spend with them as opposed to someone who has, comes in and has 15 minutes and then has to get out on to the next person. What's the health care? Um, I mentioned uh, that you are involving, you know, health care delivery is part of this. What's their interest uh, in, in helping to support and shape something like this? If people don't stay at home, it costs the health care services hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, um, you know, People, one of the things we determined in Home for Life is that people leave their homes because of lack of confidence that the healthcare system will be there for them. So if we can increase their confidence in their ability to stay at home and cope without being in danger, then they do not um, add cost to the healthcare system. It reduces the number of times they go to the emergency room that they, you know, like it it just reduces the cost because they are uh it moves things from a reactive to a proactive mm -hmm. uh mode of dealing with their health okay one more quick question uh thank you Sharon before i um will move on to some thoughts from Mimi on this any um i know you it, we referred to or maybe in our planning call we talked about kind of research that went into this what are some of the things that are being tracked or measured and do you have any preliminary results of uh what difference this program has made I'm going to – Albert and Linda Davis, um, who are two of the CEOs, are actually on this call right now. Um, <laughs> I, I actually would like to throw that question over to them. Well, great. And I'm so – you'll find me rude for not having introduced you. So <laughs> welcome. I'm glad to have you. Um, Albert, you want – or one or the other of you, you want to quickly introduce yourselves and uh, anybody want to take a stab at that uh, answer? Albert, you're not here? Oh, they're not here. You know what, Sharon? I realize actually they may have dialed in, but they're not on as a panelist, which is a, a little bit of a another okay, technical step. Okay, well, that's okay. So we, so we mean, are measuring the number of people. Um, eventually, um, they're going to be measuring the, um, the impact on emergency room visits. Uh, 
Okay. The uh, impact in terms of long-term care. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's being measured is confidence levels because okay. confidence level is a leading indicator for some of okay. those other pieces. All right, very good. All right, so here's what I'd like to do. Thank you very much, uh, Sharon, for those kind of that opening picture there. Uh, John, what I, I want to do a couple of things now uh, to keep things moving along. Let's uh, first of all, can we show the results of this poll so we can kind of um, maybe move on into the? To, I want to look at the chat as well. The WebEx is closing the poll. It will be ready in about 10 seconds. In 10 seconds. Oh, boy, you said that in a, a good, uh, your best voice there. All right, so we're going to, um, the other thing I want to say is to uh, Albert and Linda, you are welcome um, also to chat in some information if you'd like. All right, so here's our poll. Um, we actually have a majority here of people who are providing health care services. Uh, after that, uh, people who provide social services. Well, it's kind of evenly matched with, um, oh, I'm sorry, we got a lot of no answer. Well, that'll be interesting. So please, if we didn't uh, capture your category uh, or you didn't, you know, feel free to chat something in. So we've got uh, mostly healthcare delivery, others, um, the next largest category, friends, family members. And then a small portion of you, but we're glad that you're here, provide social services. All right, John, let's close that off for now, if we could. And um, I want to uh, now uh, also just again invite Albert and Linda if you want to sort of chat things in. But I guess what I want to do, Mimi, if you can bear with us, I uh, hope this doesn't sound like a three-ring circus. What I want to do is I want to throw up uh, the second polling question so we can get it in there and people kind of answering it. You got that slide there, John? Polling question number two. When it comes to caring for aging populations, what are your organization's greatest pain points? And we're asking if you could choose four. Uh, and again, if we miss something, let us know in the chat. So that'll be open also, John, for the next 10 minutes or so. Okay. All right, we'll do that now. All right, Mimi, are you there? I am. Okay, thanks, Mimi, for your patience. Uh, again, uh, Mimi from the Administration for Community Living in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So um, one way I asked Mimi, because I heard she was just fantastic, so we're thrilled to have her, um, and has a lot of background and expertise with aging issues and frail elders. Um, but I'd like to know, as you uh, have become acquainted with Home for Life, as you've uh, listened uh, to Sharon, uh, does anything like this exist now in the States, and is this the sort of model we need to be paying much more attention to than ever before? Um, yeah, there are actually, the conversations they're having in Canada are the same conversations that we're having here. Um, there are programs uh, throughout the country through uh, community organizations partnering with hospitals and healthcare systems. I have to say, it's um, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, is when a lot of these conversations started. We've been doing a lot of, uh, the last couple of years, uh, evidence-based care transition work and evidence-based chronic disease self-management. And that obviously has to be a partnership between the community organizations and the hospitals and the healthcare systems. And we have found that, um, and the, the whole purpose is to reduce 30-day readmissions. And we have found uh, through our learnings and shared with the hospitals that a lot of the reasons, in fact, studies have found that between 40 and 50% of the hospital readmissions are linked to social issues, lack of community resources, lack of community 
coordination between the health system and what we call the health-related long-term services and supports. You talk about um, you know, non-health-related services. Well, the, the programs that are in every community across the country, you know, include things like Meals on Wheels and nutrition. That's certainly a health issue. Transportation, and Sharon mentioned the transportation program. You know, about a third or a half of the transportation programs that we run are to follow-up visits, to primary care visits, uh, to the um, pharmacy for medicine, uh, medication reconciliation, et cetera. So there is a lot of things happening in the communities. All right. Thanks a lot, Mimi. Mimi created some slides that in various ways uh, give you a sense of a sort of a foundational view uh, from the administration for community living. Uh, we're going to try and share these in some logical order with your remarks, but uh, Mimi, I wanted you to maybe kind of walk us through um, per, there's this sense sometimes as we talk about building these greater, um, more population-focused fo models right now, in this case we're talking about aging populations, uh, that we're starting from scratch and healthcare doesn't know how to talk to social services and community groups and everybody's been kind of pumping away in their silos. Now some of that may be true, but I think you offer a, a really good picture about the ways in which there has been a lot of infrastructure built up over the years, so I would love it if you could explain, in a sense, why we don't necessarily have to keep reinventing the wheel, um, even with an innovative program like Home for Life kind of popping up sort of fresh, you know, in a community like South Georgian Bay. Right. Well, great question, and thank you for bringing it up. Um, the Administration for Community Living is has actually um, has a business line that's the Administration on Aging that is based on a law that was created back in 1965 when Medicare and Medicaid were created. And in fact, it was a designed as a complement uh, to the social, to the health world to provide long-term services and supports in the community. Well, we all went our different ways and we created our own silos. And we really feel like it's time to bring those those, uh, the health and the long-term care systems together. And when I'm talking long-term care systems, I'm talking about in the community and at home. Um, there is a role for nursing homes, but if we can keep people in their homes and community for as long as possible, we'll be doing the same type of work that, that Sharon's doing in Canada, is reducing uh, costs in nursing home stays, spending down to Medicaid, et cetera. So what we're finding is um, we've got this national network, which um, starts with the Administration on Aging, which is, by the way, under law, the Older Americans Act. And um, through that, we work with states, on sta with state agencies on aging, and then we have worked with 629 area agencies on aging, as well as Native American tribes. And then through that, we work with, again, the 20,000 20, service providers. And we talk about volunteers, 500,000 volunteers across this country that are providing support for long-term services and supports. Um, we provide a variety of community services, again, going back to the health-related long-term services and supports. In a, in a, if someone does a really great discharge plan and, and they think, we've, we've got this all set, and the, and the person goes home with their family caregiver or not, and the discharge planner isn't aware and the physician isn't aware that this person maybe has a refrigerator full of rotten food, uh, we need to link up those community systems so that um, if this, our community caseworkers is aware of the situation at the home. They can provide the shopping, the homemaker care, et cetera. Um, you talk about we all speak very different languages. You know, we 
the, the health system speaks a different language than we're used to. We're used to working um, on grants in the community. We, our vision through many of the efforts that are coming out of the Affordable Care Act and through our various partners across not only HHS but across the country is to develop stronger partnerships that they, we can work together, speak the same language, develop the business acumen of these community-based organizations that really know their, the older population and what their needs are, but um, also provide, and provide the right services at the right place at the right time, but really understand the needs of the health systems as well. Um, I, you know, I see you have a slide up here. There's a lot, we're finding there's a lot of different things that people need, and you may not think about that at the discharge plan. There may be uh, dental care. There may be exercise programs that the community organization knows where there are falls uh, programs within the communities. They may, you know, struggle paying their uh, copay on, on, on uh, their drugs, et cetera. So I just wanted I picked this slide. I know it's a lot of words to look at, but it's just thinking about what an individual uh, would need in a, in a transition from a hospital to a home, a nursing home back home, um, et cetera. So why do you think, um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, I, I, a lot of programs have struggled with funding. Um, you know, even the government programs, of course, it's not, you know, uh, endless. Um, and I, I wanted just to ask you, I mean, where, where would you say we are right now in maybe when you said it's sort of time for us to kind of start knitting some of this together? Um, what role do you feel that your agency can play? And are there any sorts of models now that you see kind of represent the way forward? Um, there are, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the evidence-based care transition program that actually came out of the Affordable Care Act, and that's where it's actually the community-based organization who has the program award through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, in partnership with the hospitals. And um, so we're right now in the middle of testing to see if, if, if the community organizations are the ones who have the program award and sharing, you know, um, the foundation of the program with the, the hospitals, can we reduce 30-day readmissions? What are the savings in the long run? There's opportunities through um, the accountable care organizations. There are, um, oh, I don't know the number offhand, but the accountable care organizations are growing throughout the country. They're at the point where they're going to be obviously accountable for the care of the patients that they serve. And so we are, and they're thinking about, well, what is it in the community? What is it that they need to do? Do they need to build it or do they need to buy it? Clearly, we'd like them to buy it, <laughs> but we also have to make sure that we've got continued quality improvement within those community organizations to make sure that what these accountable care organizations are buying are exactly what they need. And our organizations are at the point right now where they're figuring out and deciding, do they want to, are, are they ready to accept the risk? It's a different type of payment model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before we... Um, um, kind of show the results of our second polling question today and uh, perhaps then open things up for Q&A with our entire wonderful audience, over 500 of you today. Well, we're so glad you're here. I want to ask both of you a question. I mean, one of the sweet spots of Home for Life uh, is tapping volunteers. Uh, and um, I want Sharon to say something about that, uh, kind of why that model is so important there. And then I'd like, Mimi, uh, for you to talk about um, how realistic is that? Um, 
in, in a lot of the contexts that you may be familiar with here in, in the States. Um, I'm playing a little bit of skeptic in, in the sense that it, it seems like it might not work everywhere. But uh, Sharon, let's start with you. Talk about uh, why the volunteer component is so important uh, with the program in South Georgian Bay. You know, it's interesting. We, we do have a um, a similar structure, and we do have many, many organizations that um, fulfill the different kinds of needs. Um, and it is difficult for patients to get at those services. Um, not always, sometimes because they don't know about them, but just as often because they're scared to dial the phone, they're nervous about the person who comes to the door. We do have formal caseworkers that come to, um, that are involved with all of these seniors, but there's not enough time to develop the level of trust that is needed. So um, the volunteer has the time and the energy to, to really develop a relationship with these people and help connect them in, in a way that paid workers can't. I mean, they just, they have too many clients to be able to devote the kind of time and energy. And is it a fair characterization, I hope I spoke correctly, that a lot of the volunteers that make Home for Life work are themselves older, uh, maybe not exactly the same age of the people that they're helping out, but also older individuals? Is that a fair statement? Uh, there are many who are elder. There are okay. many who are students. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there is a spectrum. What is people will decide how much they want to commit, indiv you know, individually. Um, and, and the one thing that's neat about the program is that your participation can be tailored to what you can commit. Okay, Mimi, what about volunteers? Do they make uh, a lot of the work uh, in programs that uh, you're familiar with, do they make a lot of those run smoothly? Uh, they do. They do. I mentioned that we work with 500,000 volunteers across the country, and you did mention that social service programs don't have an equal funding amount. We rely heavily. You know, we hear all the time, oh, the elderly are costing us so much money. But the value that they bring to the community is is outstanding and really help in, in the FTE costs. Um, working with volunteers, though, you need to make sure they have the right training, they, um, the risk, there is a risk involved depending on what, what the job is that they're doing. We do have volunteer managers that are actually trained staff that um, across the country that deal exactly with those issues. Um, volunteers, you know, there's certain ones that can do certain things. Um, we know, as you have seen in the hospital walls, there's many volunteers that work in the gift shops, et cetera. Um, so they, they really are kind of the fabric of this country. And older volunteers, you know, if they're engaged within what we call the aging network, that was that structure I, I described, um, mm -hmm. when they start to have problems as well, we can grab that quickly and, and identify those and, and work with them and their family members. So. Okay. Yeah, great. Thanks, Mimi. Um, I'm going to just quickly, uh, those of you again who are joining us uh, via WebEx, we, we're just completing this poll, and then we're going to uh, open things up to your questions uh, and comments. So the winner, at least the top one, is that care is fragmented. Um, then we have uh, some other ones that come in close. Uh, we're continually managing rather than averting crises for these patients. 
um, we're too focused on curing disease and not focused enough on what matters to the patient. Uh, you kind of spread yourselves out almost pretty evenly and obviously found um, some things there that really resonated. So thank you very much uh, for taking part in that and hope that's kind of useful information to you. Um, John, let's, should we sort of move that poll out of the way and then we'll kind of, um, oh, I'm trying to bring up my chat window here. Oops, I lost it. All right. <laughs> it's, oh, your chat window. Oh, my God. Uh, You've all been communicating with me and I haven't been paying attention. I have to look at the screen now a little more closely. You can minimize the polling now that the polls are closed. Okay, thank you very much. I had various screens going here. Okay, so thank you very much um, for uh, Mimi and Sharon for your comments and we're going to open things up now for questions and uh, see what's on the minds of our listeners and we'll also um, see if other people chatted in answers to the poll. Again, you can download these slides. Um, so here's a question from Gary Wong regarding the Home for Life pro program. What is the average length of time a volunteer might volunteer? Uh, how long is the training orientation before the volunteer is able to engage seniors in home in doing sort of things in the home independently? Uh, Sharon, that's for you. Um, so we have many, many volunteers who are with the program since the day it started about 18 months ago, um, you know, especially in our technology area. So I don't know that I have an average right now. We do find that um, it tends to go one way or the other. People come, they try it out, and they're gone very quickly, or they stay forever. Like it, like it tends to be one um, extreme or the other. Um, the training and orientation Again, changes uh, depending on the particular program, but it's typically about a day. Okay. All right. Um, anything, Mimi, you want to add about about training? And I'm just curious, has the needs changed at all? Um, you know, we volunteer as a volunteer, but we have a number of, uh, you know, new and different kinds of issues. I'm just curious, Mimi, if anybody is discovering anything new about the type of training needed. Yeah, it's it's across the board. It depends on the program. You know, we have volunteers that work for the, you know, um, working with CMS under the State Health Insurance and Assistance Program. That's a very intense training. It's really understanding Medicare and Medicaid and, and benefits uh, outreach and enrollment. Uh, we have other volunteers that maybe volunteer at a senior center and they um, help deliver home delivered meals. That, you know, do you have a driver's license? <laughs> Are you safe to go into someone's home? Um, we do background checks. Um, so, again, it just it varies on the type of program it is. Okay. Folks are asking, a couple people are asking questions about um, uh, faith community nurses, uh, parish nurses in the mix. Um, people are sort of talking about that amongst themselves here in the chat. Uh, any any thoughts about that, um, working specifically with that group, either um, Mimi or Sharon? Um, I can start. This is Mimi. Um, okay. We have an HHS. There's a faith-based uh, community office, faith-based office in HHS, and each of our – we've got staff from here as well as other operating divisions that, that work together, and in fact, they did a site visit not too long ago into Tennessee, where they did use the parish nurses as uh, doing the care transition activities, and it was very well coordinated and in partnership with the hospitals in this particular city. So, absolutely, you know, all hands on deck these days. 
Okay. Thank you. Go ahead, Sharon. Mm -hmm. Um, In Home for Life, we've actually taken the opposite approach um, in terms of encouraging the volunteers do not get into um, diagnosis or support from that kind of thing. They, uh, if they have something that concerns them, they have a contact point that they raise it to, and then that person is engaged, but the actual um, volunteers themselves are not, you know, um, the nurses. The nurses go in from a different aspect. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Get that. What about um, community? Somebody's asking, do some of the community workers get paid? Maybe, uh, Sharon, you could just kind of give us a sense. I don't know if you can, and I do see your colleagues, Albert and Linda, are in here too, so maybe they can help you out and chat this in. But anything about the budget for this program? Who is getting paid uh, in, you know, you're, you're pooling sort of resources and coordination from multiple organizations, but can you give us a sense of kind of paying, non-paying, kind of what the budget yeah. is? It started all with volunteers, and about six months ago, there is one manager that is paid, there is a volunteer coordinator that is paid, and then there's a part-time administrative assistant. Okay. All right. And we believe that would support approximately 500 volunteers. Wow. Okay. All right. So it's it's fairly low budget. Um, Sharon, is there a similar, um, you know, comparable to what Mimi's talking about sort of from her government perch within the Department of Health and Human Services, is there something comparable that is also in play, uh, well, throughout Canada, but also in this particular community, and is it linked in in any way? Absolutely. There's something called a local health integration network, uh, whose role it is so we similarly uh, to what Mimi put up, there are a number of organizations that deliver all sorts of different kinds of services. And the role of the Local Health Integration Network or the LIN is to facilitate those organizations working together. Um, the most effective role these organizations play is to be really clear about what their priorities are uh, and to be really clear about the criteria and then provide funding envelopes to solve very specific problems. Uh, so in this case, you know, there was a real criteria around reducing emergency room visits and readmissions. Um, and some of the criteria was that organizations had to work together in a meaningful way, not just have four organizations sign the bottom of a document, but demonstrate that you really are genuinely working together. And then they provided the funding. So the ideas emerged from the ground, but they provided the overall framework within which um, funding would be provided. Okay, thank you. Couple questions here about technologies. You mentioned Sharon, of course, uh, volunteers, and uh, one of the key issues that um, seniors and older people were being helped with is technologies, computer, et cetera, uh, in order to be connected uh, to um, the outside world through the internet, uh, others that they want to be in touch with, et cetera. Um, curious. The questions here, though, are much more about telehealth and uh, the kinds of things that are being developed to help monitor things at home, uh, you know, in some ways, another way of thinking about supporting people in their own homes because perhaps they can monitor various chronic conditions, check blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera.
Sarah. Uh, maybe, Mimi, I'll start with you kind of as you sort of think sure. about the, the weight here of technologies and telehealth and remote things uh, that also in some way enable people to stay at home. I don't now, want to say versus volunteers, but still. Right. No, I think that's a terrific question. And through, uh, again, the, the Innovation Center over at CMS, um, from the Affordable Care Act, there's a lot of models being tested through the Healthcare Innovation Awards around telehealth, and those just started about a year ago, so we don't have any of the results yet, but there is telehealth is, is one way to look at it. Another question that we always have around here when we're thinking about, you know, if our parents live in another state and you see these ads on TV and you think, oh, I won't have to worry anymore because <laughs> they will be <laughs> monitored and now I feel safe, but where's the evidence? Um, so, uh, where, you know, where, what really proved, what has proven to be to work? And then finally, we actually did a test through, um, you know, I mentioned we did some, we did some, actually, ACL did some grants to some states around care transitions right after the Affordable Care Act was launched out of our own discretionary dollars to see if, you know, if we really could do it. Do we have the capacity? And behind that, the SCAN Foundation, which funds the Center for Technology and Aging, came in and awarded five of those states to say, I want you to test some, some technologies along with these care transitions. And they did everything from some of the t uh, states tested, um, so med it's called home meds, it's a, it's a medication reconciliation. Others tested um, various transferring of data between, you know, the health side and the community side. So we really found those effective, and in fact, a tool just came out, was launched yesterday, as a result of those programs through the Center for Aging and Technology. I do not have the link with me, but it's, that's the name of the organization. Um, and they came up. I'm going to wonder about it. <laughs> I know, I know, and, but they came up, they kind of have a toolbox on some technologies as well. Okay, say again, just I want to make sure everyone got that. So a new tool came out from? The Center for the, Aging and Technology. Center for Aging and Technology. Okay, we'll look it up and we'll try and see if we can get it in our resource uh, document. Um, I appreciate uh, your sure. mention of that. Okay, great. I'm looking at some of the other questions. Some of you are answering each other's questions, which is good. Um, Good resource for a summary of the programs that are being considered by, for, with the Affordable Care Act. Well, that's an interesting question. I imagine um, the current things that are certainly there, I'd start probably with, with hhs.gov, but uh, we'll look into that and see if we can throw that into our resource document as well. Um, Kelly asks an interesting question. The volunteer pool has shrunk considerably with the increase in women working and retirees heading south for the winter and or returning to work. Um, a lot of competition for volunteer resources. Um, any thoughts on that uh, for Sharon and then me? Yeah, we had an interesting way of solving that because, of course, in Canada, snowbirds are a big issue from a volunteer point of view. Yes. Um, and basically, we put the question back to the volunteers, and they figured out how to solve it themselves. So, you know, our technology program, you know, the lead as well as several others went to the winter, and they, you know, we kind of said, okay, how are we going to keep this program going? And they recruited people and redelegated tasks, and they sorted it out. So they will, if you don't try and impose the solutions and the systems and think things out all centrally, if you engage people, they figure out a way to make it happen and how to grow it and keep it going. 
Well, and I think uh-huh. the volunteer core that we have and that we're getting into is, is the baby boom. Um, they really want to be involved in engaging meaningful activities. And mm-hmm. so treating them as an equal to the professionals that are actually running the program, I think, makes a difference as well. Mm-hmm. That, that was huge. Yeah, definitely. Mimi, what about um, this? There's various things in here as I'm looking through the chat um, quickly. Uh, some things about payment and reimbursement and, you know, having incentives all line up. And in a way, uh, I don't know if you feel this so much, Sharon, in Canada, but here in the States, certainly there's a little bit of a, well, not a little bit, a big thing around chicken and egg. How long, you know, do we sit around and wait for payment reform? Um, <laughs> to do things in different ways, um, or you know, do we do go to it in some sense and start developing these new models? And uh, payment uh, reform will come at pace and begin to align. Mimi, what what are you dealing with in that regard? I think again, and I, I keep going to my go to the Affordable Care Act, but there are many yeah. new uh, payment models being tested now. Um, we are working, this has been a terrific opportunity between ACL and the other and CMS, the payers of the department here, to really sit down at the table and try and work things out. Um, we all sort of have kind of a shared vision. A vision. We, you know, we have, you know, all of our leadership is, is trying to figure this out. It's really, you know, I've been in the field forever and this is the most exciting time in my career because the conversations we are having right now were the same conversations we were having 25 years ago, but I actually feel like the needle is can potentially move. And why is that? I well, the affordable care. But I think, well, I think, well, I think that. And I'm doing. Yeah. No, I, I think there's also. I got it. I hate to say it. You know, I'm a boomer. There's a lot of boomers. We're all getting older. We're like, oh, we don't want the same systems our parents had. You know, I mean, I think there's a willingness. So. Yeah, to to kind of look at these issues. We've got to fix it. We can't afford it. You know. Yeah. And people right. are going to demand that they, they get the, the services. You know, the boomers have been very demanding, and they're going to want the right services at the right time. Right. Well, Go ahead, what we are finding is that success attracts money. And so it is the pockets in Canada, and Home for Life is an example, that we're willing to take a little bit of a risk and do something different that was genuinely based on doing things better for the patient they start to get results, they start to, and that attracts new kinds of investments into that community that are not available to all the communities. Um, and yeah. so, so there is a piece about the willingness to stay, step out there and do things differently. How much would you say that Home for Life is acting as a model um, for in other parts of Ontario, other provinces? Um, is there any sort of a network forming where you're able to kind of share these best practices? Um, yes. the Certainly there are more and more calls by by governments, by other sections of the province, by other areas even kind of relatively locally to understand what is happening and how it was put in place. So so it is being seen as um, a pilot to be copied. Okay. Mimi, thank you. Um, Mimi, a, a question for you. Um, we talked about this a little bit on the planning call. Um, Sharon, in some sense, invokes this idea that if you let the community speak, you know, in some sense, <laughs> trust this community, uh, people will come forward and have a lot of ideas and have a lot of solutions. And I totally get 
what she's talking about. On the other hand, at least in the states or in a lot of communities, there's sometimes a lot of paralysis. People aren't sure how to make the first move. Um, hospitals maybe don't, you know, aren't used to talking outside their own walls, and then when they do, they kind of act like they're it, and uh, <laughs> that, in, <laughs> that in and of itself can be problematic. What are you finding? Um, and I don't know whether the aging population is, you know, helping folks kind of move through these issues, but what are you finding uh, either in, in within your agency or, or the models that you're aware of that are being tested? Oh, I, you know, this is uh, it's a great question. You know, every community is unique, um, but you really need to have your leadership from the community, from the hospital side, buy-in, you know, and a willingness to make this work for the people that we serve. Um, there are models out there, but again, it starts with a community conversation, kind of figure out what's happening, what is unique in your community, how do we address that? And again, but it really takes leadership behind. It really takes a willingness to make things change. Um, three years ago or so, when we started having these conversations, you know, we, we'd heard from the, the health side, you know, oh, aren't you guys the free people in the community? Well, no. <laughs> and there's a law behind us, believe it or not. Um, and, and they're beginning to see, of course, there's been some policy changes, you know, the penalty that took started in, in October around uh, reducing readmissions. But there's a lot of levers going on out there that is making people really think about how we do business differently because, you know what, it really wasn't working before. And, and we need to come up with solutions. And, again, it's just we can't afford to, to not think differently and outside the box. You know, it's interesting. Linda mentioned earlier in the chat the return to the village concept, and this is something right. that we have seen really take hold. Um, people recognize that, you know, over our lifespan, there has been a shift that there is more and more expectation of the healthcare system to take on roles that community members, you know, and, and churches and neighbors and friends used to play. And there is a desire and an understanding that it's never going to work as well if we expect formal organizations to play all those roles. Mm -hmm. So um, it's um, that there is a real appeal for that return to the village concept, totally separate from a home for life, but that desire for community and to support each other. And this just taps into that desire. Well, I'm sure this also, you know, relates to, you know, the movement and, you know, where we can begin to understand sort of so-called naturally occurring communities where people are aging in place. I'm just going to take a quick moment here with John uh, just to remind you of some something coming up for um, at IHI, and then that's quite related, and then we'll start to wrap up. John? Thanks, Madge. Uh, great chat today, everyone. If managing populations, uh, aging or otherwise, is a challenge for your organization, uh, we invite you to learn more about the IHI AAA Improvement Community, which is a 12-month learning collaborative that starts this September. The AAA simultaneously pursues improving the patient experience of care, improving the health of populations, and reducing the per capita cost of health care. The framework has since grown into a galvanizing principle for health system improvement and a bedrock for several national policy initiatives here in the U.S. Next Thursday, May 9, we'll be holding an informational call about the AAA Improvement Community at 2 o'clock and we hope you can join us. For more information, visit IHI.org backslash triple aim or email the team at triple aim at IHI.org. All right. Thanks, John. And I'm noticing in the chat uh, some of you are, there are some things that people, um, well, Vicki here helping us out with WIHI uh, put in some links, and others of you have done so as well. We will share as much as we can 
uh, in the resource document. If any of you, uh, many of you said you were certainly working in organizations where you're in this space uh, that's very related to today's uh, conversation, if you want to right now uh, chat in uh, any links uh, from your own organizations or uh, tools that you think would be kind of useful to um, kind of keep our uh, thinking and uh, going here, we'll be very, very happy to share them in the resource document even as we wrap up. And I'm going to have John one more time uh, paste this link uh, that Sharon uh, saved, uh, shared with us. Uh, in part, I want you to be reminded of it because this is a link that's basically active today and today only, uh, but you've got some really, really interesting articles uh, that you can download there. So appreciate all the richness of the conversation today. All right, Sharon and Mimi, we, we're pretty much going to need to wrap up now, and um, I'm not sure kind of what the parting shot is, but maybe I'll ask Sharon, what's next, uh, Home for Life? Let's see, how old is it now, and uh, kind of what, what, what's next on the horizon for this effort? We um, see it expanding in three ways. We see it expanding in terms of the number of clients. We see engaging the community to expand the number of services. And we see it expanding in terms of the number of populations. The model that we've implemented for the aging would work just as well for mental health or for you know other populations. So that's really where this is going. Okay, thank you very much. Mimi, what should we, um, I don't know, how do we watch this uh, space here? <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> I don't know, should we stay in touch with you? <laughs> yeah, stay in touch with me, but we also, um, you know, if for the folks in the states that aren't aware of the Aging Network, um, you can go to www.eldercare.gov and that will find where your local aging programs and services are. But yes, you please stay in touch with me. We really we can make this needle move. I know we can. Okay. Well, I really, really appreciate it. I want to thank uh, folks who are sharing again so, uh, on the chat uh, ways to stay in touch with one another, and that's fantastic, and that is one of the functions of uh, WIHI. We certainly uh, like to help with that networking. So I want to thank Mimi Toomey and also Sharon King, and we'll get as much as we can uh, into our resource document. Somebody asked when would all this material be available by tomorrow morning. We'll have the audio of the program as well as these slides today and related resources. And by the next WIHI, we'll also have our music back at the top of the show and at the bottom of the show. And I'm sorry if that threw some of you off, some changes in the studio here that will all be ironed out. So I want to uh, say a big thank you to my guests today and all of you who have joined to be part of this creative discussion. Uh, Jane Rossner is listening in, and uh, she'll probably throw up a few things on few things on IHI's Facebook page, so you want to maybe check that out, and hopefully we'll bring some others in on the conversation. Next up on WIHI on May 16th, uh, we've been sort of after this for a while, and we finally pulled it together. We're going to be looking at reliable practices uh, in the face of natural disasters, lessons from Long, North Shore, Long Island Jewish, and Hurricane Sandy, and we have kind of the leads. Uh, who made a lot of, from that system, who made a, a lot of really, really important decisions uh, during that time um, and uh, we, last year, and we look forward to sharing all that information with you. And the um, info is up there on the website now, and you can enroll if you'd like. A reminder again, you can download the chat, all the slides, 
Uh, tomorrow you can find all the materials, including the audio, and we do have a brief survey that we'd love it if you could fill out when you log off today. Um, and let's see, any questions whatsoever? Anything you're wondering about, you can email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. And we have a nice uh, Northeastern co-op, Nicole Wells, who helps out a lot as well. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for joining us for this really important discussion. I hope we can build on it in the future. Good day, everyone. Thank you.